electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour, the third inning. That's where famed market watcher Jeremy Siegel says the boom in stocks currently is. It's a big call. We'll debate if he's right and what it means for your money if he is. And we'll do that with our investment committee. Joining me for the hour today, Shannon Sakosha is with us, the chief investment officer at Boston Private Wealth. Jim Labenthal is here along with Pete Najarian, Rob Seachin, the co-founder and managing partner of New Edge Capital Group. And Mr. Wonderful Kevin O'Leary is here as well, the chairman of O'Shares ETFs. I'll take you to the wall, as I always do, to start things off, show you where the trade currently is. We do have a big jump today in inflation. So rates are up a little bit, though. They've, they're 163, 164. No big deal, right? There's the Dow up 75, the S&P, NASDAQ. Everything's positive at this hour. But it is that big call from Jeremy Siegel. I want to show you the sound because a lot of people are talking about it. Here's where he thinks the market currently is. Real assets is what you want in the economy that I foresee and inflation. And it isn't until the Fed finally leans really hard then you have to work. I mean, we could have a market go up 30% before or 40% before it goes down at 20% when he really has to do that. So we're not in the ninth inning here. We're more like in the third inning of the boom. All right, Kevin O'Leary, it's a big call by a guy who's bullish a lot of the time. The question is, is he right with his premise being, look, until the Fed does anything, to be quote unquote hostile, the market's going up. Yeah, is he right? Yes, but the real question is when is he right? Now, let's just use a very easy measure uh, in terms of inflation. The handle on the 10 year has to break through three. Gotta be over 3% for it ever to become competitive in fixed income against hard assets and equities. And we're nowhere near there. I do agree, and I've been bullish along with him on for the third and fourth inning of this game, and let's call it third and fourth quarter, we're going to, we are way underestimating earnings in the S&P 500, in my opinion. I suggest that what's going to happen in the fourth quarter, and the market's trying to figure this out every day with all the cross-currents going on, you know, inflation, no inflation, and everybody else saying tech is over, and all of these cross-currents. Bottom line is, I think where we end up at the end of the year is GDP growth rates north of 8%, and probably 15% higher in S&P earnings. It's going to be a blowout ending of this year, something we haven't seen since the 1950s. And why? Well, thank you, Fed. Thank you, President Biden. Free money out of helicopters from everywhere. Free money, 1.9 trillion in free money, and now another trillion and a half of free money. Keep it coming. It doesn't get any better than this. You'll have to pay for it one day, but hey, let's not spike the party yet. That's why, Pete, Siegel thinks what he does. I mean, this was a week in which we heard the word Goldilocks be mentioned what it, uh, once again for all of the reasons that Mr. Wonderful just said and the reasons that Jeremy Siegel cited why he thinks we are in 
the third inning of this boom that you've got between now and at minimum the end of the year to think that stocks are going to go up before you have to worry. Is he right? Well, I, I, I'm not so sure that I believe before you have to worry, but I certainly think that the overall theme right now, Scott, when you really look at things is, look, we continue to throw trillions of dollars, as, as Kevin says, free money continues to flow. And as that flow is happening, we're also seeing the vaccines as they're rolling out and the acceleration of that and the reopen and all of that, that that goes into what we are seeing in the markets right now. And I think that very healthy rotation from sector to sector to sector and even the daily sort of rotation that we are seeing. One day, it seems like it's the, the NASDAQ that's going to lead us. The next day, it's the Dow. The next day, we're seeing more, more from the S&P. It's just been a combination of a lot of very positive things. I don't know that that can go on forever, but certainly saying it's maybe in the third or fourth inning makes a little bit of sense to me. But I think the reality is, look at the volatility of how low we have gotten. I mean, we were not too terribly long ago trading in the 30s and 40s, and here we are now in the teens. And I think that gives people a little bit more comfort in terms of a lot, a lot of different ways, Scott, because when they see that, they realize, and everybody always calls it the fear index. I, I don't agree with that as, a, as the moniker, but it is oftentimes called that, and people are looking at that saying, hey, look, this is telling us something, and it's telling us we don't need to be afraid right now. I don't, I don't necessarily subscribe to that, but I do think that people are feeling very, very comfortable as they're entering the markets and shifting around uh, and being much more involved in the markets than ever before. And Shannon, you know, maybe it's no more complicated than exactly what the professor was talking about. He said that he has never heard a Fed chairman as dovish as Jay Powell was yesterday in that exclusive conversation that our own Sarah Eisen had. And it was basically a reiteration of a version of we're not even thinking about thinking about thinking about thinking about raising rates anytime soon. Not worried about inflation. It's temporary. It's transitory. You've got too many dislocations still within the economy. We're trying to vaccinate the world. And until that happens to a great degree, there's no reason to worry about much at all, that the Fed is not going to make a move uh, because of all of those variables that are still in existence. And therefore, you've got to buy stocks. Well, the Fed set this up last year, Scott, and although you know many of us were talking about this change in their approach from an expectation to outcome approach as it relates to inflation and employment, I think what we're seeing is that we're seeing that in practice, not only from the meeting minutes, but in every single conversation that Chairman Powell has, he is trying to reiterate that he believes that we are clearly in the midst of a very sharp K-shaped recovery. And his view is that a great economy does not just benefit one side of the economy. And so in setting up that, that new paradigm, those new expectations in the fourth quarter of last year, the Fed has a ton of cover to see what they can do to potentially impact this and make this more of an even recovery across the board and not just a K-shaped recovery. I can't state how important that is. And every time that we get into these modes where we're expecting this taper tantrum, um, a la 2013, we should come back to the fact that the Fed's mandate and the way they're looking at their mandate is different today than it was then. Another point that I just wanna make, and Pete talked about this, this volatility activity, uh, whether you measure it through the VIX or through volume, we're entering a period of, of relative calm over the last couple of days, and one could say complacency. But I think it's based on the fact that we had these sharp increases in volatility in the, in the first quarter, 
And yet, at the end of the quarter, when we looked at the returns, it really wasn't indicated in those. And th so I do think that there are going to be these bouts of volatility. There are going to be these one-off um, examples of excess. Um, but with the Fed at our back, and I think they will be, regardless of what things like the PPI that we saw today look like, I think we need to kind of move forward and, and have that as our expectation. Now, Rob, I'm sure there's somebody and maybe there are groups of people out there who are saying, well, what else is the professor going to say? Of course, Jeremy Siegel's bullish because he's always bullish. So he's ignoring some of the risk. He's complacent like everybody else. He's complacent like what the VIX is showing a lot of people are. But you know what? It's not just Siegel. OK, you look at Bank of America flow show. The amount of money flowing into stocks is nearly unprecedented. I mean, we're talking about things like the amount of money flowing over the last, you know, five weeks or so is equal or five months is equal to like the last 12 years. There, there's your there's your number. The, over the money flowing in over the past five months is more than over the past 12 years. That is inflow into global equity funds. David Costin, Goldman Sachs, he's bullish. He said we're still going to hit 4,300 this year. Wells Fargo says there's a lot of optimism now about earnings that expectations were so low and now they're higher and that's going to be good for the market as well. So it's not just the professor, the, the bulled up professor. It, it, it's really everybody, but th th there is also on the other side of the ledger, just from a positioning standpoint, it's got a lot of skepticism too. A lot of bears pronouncing that this is the top. We've come too far too fast. Just look at Twitter. You can see all these guys. They, they're typically not on this show, but too far too fast. Rape fears, COVID fears, inflation fears. There's a lot of bearish uh, sentiment out there and yet there's the positioning indicates there's a ton of cash on the sidelines and so wh what we've seen is a lot of people being drawn into markets from the sidelines so i think the numbers that you just showed are just the beginning uh something that was particularly encouraging about this week's rally is that it was achieved even though energy which is the best sector year to date up 28 percent was down 3.6 percent going into the show tech which has lagged the market year to date actually led this year's uh rally so it's great to see a broadening out we see that vaccine penetration continues ahead of schedule. And the reason for commerce interrupting lockdowns diminishing is that each shot that somebody get um, allows the economic reopening to overpower all these negatives and literally forces these investors from the sidelines and into the most attractive assets, which we th still think are the, are the cyclicals. There was a pause this week in cyclicals, but we think that ultimately they they uh, they reemerge their leadership. But it doesn't mean you have to abandon the stocks that did well this week, which are the the uh, large cap growth stocks that are really almost bulletproof. And I laugh at the notion that they sell off when interest rates go up. They don't need debt financing in most cases. These companies' balance sheets are bulletproof. So it's, it's a really interesting dynamic. And I think the pause in cyclicals is one that refreshes and investors are gonna continue to be drawn from the sidelines. So that brings me to the farmer who's been driving around on his tractor and he keeps seeing green shoots, right, Jim? Because you're the one who's been, yeah. you've been taking the cash that you've had on the sidelines. You're representative of a lot of people out there. You had accumulated some cash. You were a little concerned about a pullback. 
didn't really get much of one. Man, we did, but we didn't. And no. now we seem to be the pause that refreshes again. And then you put money back to work. You've bought Apple on the dips twice. You bought things like Qualcomm and you've bought other things as well. So getting some of that money back into the market. Yeah, and, and Boeing and Cisco. Um, you know, it's very clear from my actions and my words that I am very bullish right now. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not just going to wipe away the accusations of complacency because I think there are excellent arguments against the complacency. I think there's fundamental reasons. And we've talked so far today about aggregate demand picking up, whether it's fiscal stimulus or, or vaccines. That's fine. You know what's also going to help here is supply chain issues. You know, we've been in a chip shortage issue uh, for the last several months that has held back production. And you can look at GM and Ford and how many plants they're idling. So think about when those chip shortages go away, and they will. Think about those plants going back online and think about inventories on dealer lots that are one third, roughly one third of what they normally would be. Get those trucks and cars and pickups back on there. They're going to sell like hotcakes. But here's the beautiful part. That's not tomorrow. That's second half of this year. That's into 2022. By the way, similar phenomenon, the Texas weather situation and the electricity breakdown. Fix that. That's going to that's going to be CapEx that's going to be spent to fix that and make a more productive supply chain because Texas, I mean, look, it's got everything. But think about how plastics and petrochemicals were shut down in February. The supply chain issues, as those clear up over the next year, I think Professor Siegel is fundamentally right that this extends well into 2022. So third inning, I'm right there with him. OK, so Pete, you know, your brother told us about a, a fairly sizable options trade yesterday, betting on a rise in the VIX. Now, people are writing about it today. Right. Saw an article that, that references directly what we're talking about here. You know, uh, this one is a $40 million bet on a rise in volatility over the next few months, a, vol a, a bet that the VIX is going to rise above 25, which would be a monster jump from mm -hmm. where it is now, uh, and go towards 40 by mid-July. You have any more color on that? You talk to us about that kind of a bet. Yeah, you know, it was, what's interesting, Scott, is yesterday when they initially put on the, that trade, um, it was pretty much put on all at once. 140,000 of it, at least, was put on all at once very early in the trading session with that buy. Then I think that with the rest of what filled in after that was a lot of chasing saying, you know what? We do think that maybe we have the chance over the next three months or so to see a pretty nice rise in the VIX. Now, we haven't seen that in the last month or so. If you go back a full month, yes, that's when we were in the mid-20s and even towards 30. But it's been a little while, and we've been steadily selling off. So at some point, you would expect to see something that might disrupt these markets. And I think that's essentially what this uh, trade is telling us is. We don't know exactly what it might be, but we think that when we get a spike, it's going to be pretty significant because to get back up and over that, Scott, you're basically going to have to get over 27 on the VIX before this even starts to make much money. And a lot of that has to do with pricing. I don't want to get into the complexity of that, but the VIX is priced far differently than normal options in a, neg in a regular equity or an ETF. So just keep, it, keep that in mind as well. But 200,000 of those overall, that is a monstrous trade. That was a huge trade yesterday, and it makes 
makes some sense because is it going to be something from the catalyst of earnings season? Is it going to be something outside of the United States that we don't see right now, but some sort of a conflict? There's a lot of different things that could cause this, and it would make a lot of sense, and it's not when you look at the actual money that's being spent. Yes, because of the size of the trade, it's a huge, massive trade. You mentioned $40 million, but the reality is when you look at it, this is a $15 spread that somebody's buying for approximately $2. So if this were to rise significantly and you actually push towards that 40, then you've got yourself an unbelievable trade. So we're going to have to obviously watch this. And they did buy out to the later part of July for this trade as well. What's interesting too, Pete, is that I'm looking at the VIX on the screen as you're, you're talking here, as our viewers are. So yeah. VIX 17, you get and we're, you're talking about what, what catalysts you know, could be out there that could send the VIX rocketing higher and maybe stocks lower. You know, obviously interest rates have been much talked about of late. But even a move today in inflation, which was a big jump, is sort of a ho-hum. It's not like rates are, are, are really moving yeah. on that. And it's not like the VIX is, is really moving on that. And this is perhaps just one person's p- point of view and, and perspective everybody's got that right. everybody has their own point of view and perspective sure. and maybe maybe it is the the one thing that could be unnerving to people and that would be a significant move higher in interest rates by them by the midsummer mm-hmm. let's say and let's hey, not drop out the idea that it could it could be a hedge sorry sorry to interrupt but that it could be a hedge scott you're hedging if you've got monster positions on and you are really bullish, but the one thing that could cause those that bullishness to not look so good a few months from now would be whatever that event might be. So this is a phenomenal way to hedge something, especially if it's S&P related. This is a great way to actually have some form of a hedge in place. Right. So in case there is some sort of disruption, you've at least got this. I want to I move the conversation along for a second, too, because if you're talking about risks and interest rate rising, you know, as being a a risk, it certainly relates to what we've witnessed in the growth trade and the tech trade. And and on that note, I want to bring up a a comment from Dubrovko Lakos from JP Morgan, who, by the way, is going to be with us on Monday. Rob, you you can have this one. He thinks the bulk of the momentum sell off is done. Um, And that would be significant. So, I mean, even if rates rise a little bit, um, if the bulk of the momentum sell off is done, and you think that that trade's going to come back, plus he believes value has more room to run, that would be uh, the catalyst that people are looking for for a next leg, participation from both growth and value, moving the market higher. And I think some of that expectation, Scott, was, uh, was priced into to the, market, to the market this week. I think the Fed has said they're going to be incredibly supportive, although we know that markets uh, markets kind of set rates um, and that the Fed's not entirely in control of that when they're not uh, doing any quantitative easing. I do think that is massively supportive. We kind of have a 2% expectation on the 10-year uh, this year. I view that as long as the pace of the rise is measured, markets will desensitize to that being a front burner issue. I think the other thing that's interesting, just to pivot back to the volatility statement, which is an important one, we have to remember that macro managers in many cases are completely willing to bleed premium to hedge their portfolios. And this could just be a big bet to hedge 
yeah, not even a bet. It's just a hedging exercise to say, hey, listen, this is our positioning and we're going to have something in place just in case uh, that doesn't work. And we're OK if we spend a little premium to uh, to get that, as Pete said. So I think a lot of these things that we're worried about, whether it be inflation, whether it be interest rates, whether it be valuations, um, whether it be a COVID variant, whether it be taxes, are things that are going to be overpowered because it really takes overpowered by the opening of the economy because it really, really takes something significant in any one of those to kind of change this trajectory. And I just don't see it happening. Right, right. Hey, Pete, um, you know, speaking of the growth trade yeah. and the, you know, the pickup in stocks like Facebook and Alphabet, Microsoft, the, these mega cap techs, which have been hitting new all time highs. Yeah. Apple's one of the leaders of the week. You bought more Microsoft. Now, I know you, you th I think you trimmed a little bit since you, you, you bought more, but yep. you continue to place your bets towards mm -hmm. big tech. Yeah, I absolutely do. And, and I think it was Jim that was talking about big tech and the possibilities going to the upside. And I still believe in it, Scott. I mean, it made sense to me that they had a big, long pause because that was really one of the areas where we see we saw the most growth early on. And then we started rotating around and suddenly it was the financials and the industrials and materials and all the rest of it while we had that pause in these big mega cap type names. But when you really look at the balance sheets, they're phenomenal. When you look at the potential for growth that they've already got in some of the areas that they're moving towards where there's even more growth. I think that there's a real reason to take a long look at some of these names once again and say, you know what? Microsoft might be too cheap. Apple might be too cheap. Now, I know when you look at the PEs, you say, well, looks maybe like it's a little higher than normal. Oh, that's true. But there are so many other aspects of what we are seeing right now as we rotate away from certain other areas in the market back into some of these names. I think that there's still tremendous growth possibilities. We've all been talking about Google for a while now, and that's been an extraordinary mover. That's been the most extraordinary of late. But look at Facebook. I know I keep bringing this up, but Facebook has been on an absolute tear to the upside, despite the fact that Zuckerberg is having to go up, it seems like, on a pretty consistent basis in front of whomever to talk about all of the different uh, the, the areas where he's maybe failing. And yet you look at that company and all they do is continue to go up, uh, it seems like, every day. Yeah. OK. Uh, speaking of going up, new highs today for the Dow and the S&P. Uh, been nearly every day. It feels like that you're setting a new high, a new record high for both the Dow and the S&P. We'll take a quick break. Coming up next, Morgan Creek's chief investment officer, Mark Yusko, is with us. Haven't talked to him in a while. We're looking so much forward to that. He's a little cautious on the market as well. And he also has a unique perspective on the Archegos fallout. You want to hear that. He knew Bill Huang. He was an early investor with him as well. We'll talk to him next. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. 
Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. Welcome back. I'm Rahel Solomon, and here is your CNBC News update at this hour. Kentucky Governor Andy Bashir has signed a partial ban on no-knock warrants. That's a response to the protests that followed last year's death of Breonna Taylor during a police raid. Now, it wasn't as strong as many Democrats wanted, but it did attract support from Republicans in the legislature. At the trial of Derek Chauvin, a retired forensic pathologist has testified that George Floyd did die of a lack of oxygen as he was being restrained. Lindsay Thomas said that based on the video that we've all seen, Floyd's death was a direct result of what the police officers did. Defense is arguing that Floyd's drug use and health problems were responsible. An astronaut and two Russian cosmonauts rode a Soyuz rocket today for their trip to the International Space Station. That's where they will conduct scientific experiments. And more than 500,000 high school students received an email telling them that they had been accepted to a program that usually takes just 35 to 40 students a year. Not everyone, however, was disappointed when the school admitted it had made a mistake because many recipients said that they never applied or even knew the program existed. You're now up to date. Scott, I'll send it back to you. All right, Rahel. Thank you so much, Rahel Solomon. Let's welcome in our headliner now, Mark Yusko. He's the CEO and CIO of Morgan Creek Capital. Welcome. Good to see you. It's been a while. Oh, thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me on and uh, happy Friday. Yeah, same to you. I, I hope you heard part of our conversation at, at the very least leading into you uh, and these comments that Jeremy Siegel of the Wharton School made to us on our program yesterday that he thinks we're in the third inning of this boom. Nothing to worry about until the Fed makes its first move. What do you think? You agree? Uh, I probably wouldn't agree per se. I, I do think that, look, um, liquidity talks and liquidity drives markets. And so long as, as they keep getting these big stimulus bills passed, there is potential for the nominal value of stocks to go up. I think that's a dangerous game to play, though. I, I saw a great chart the other day, Scott. If you take the value of the S&P divided by the Fed balance sheet, it's been dead flat since 2008. If you divide the S&P by gold, it's been dead flat since 1996. So the nominal value keeps increasing, but we are losing purchasing power through the devaluation of our currency. So let me ask you, what, what's there to be mostly negative about? Is it, do you, do you, you have a problem with valuation? Because, you know, multiples have come in. Our earnings expectations continue to go up. Rates are still incredibly low by historical standards. And Jay Powell has said repeatedly, including on our network yesterday in his conversation with Sarah Eisen, that they're not doing anything anytime soon, that any of the fears of inflation, at least in their mind, are overblown in the near term because they're transitory and temporary and they're going to go away. Yeah, look, I, I mean, there's, there's so many things to worry about in the sense of, you know, valuations are, are silly or, or stupid. I mean, I, either, either one works. 
so whichever one you, you favor, go for it. Uh, look, we've never been at these levels of overvaluation. We're 179% of fair value. So, you know, that doesn't mean we can't get to 180 or 181 or 183% of fair value, but we've just never seen this level. And part of it is this idea of, of the Fed model, that as long as interest rates are low, then valuations can be high. Well, that's kind of a silly idea when you think about it. If we take it to its illogical extreme, if interest rates were zero, are stocks worth infinity, right? It breaks down under 2%. There's a lot of data on that. Uh, the second, or the last piece of it is economic growth, right? Economic growth is was surprisingly weak in the fourth quarter. Uh, there's everybody who's hoping that it'll be better this year, but hope is not an investment strategy. And if we look at the gap- Oh, it's gonna be though, come on. You, you got to admit- you got to admit, I mean, you're not casting doubt on on the rebound in the economy, are you? I mean, because by every single measure, there's so much pent up demand, Mark, that, you know, expect you could have massive, massive GDP numbers uh, and this roaring well, 20s idea. Are you, are you totally casting disagree. doubt on that? Totally disagree. It's, it's just the base effect, right? You're growing off a small number and people just don't want to do the math, right? If you go down 30%, you don't have to be up 30% to get even. You got to be up, you know, closer to 50%. So that's the problem is yes, the the headline numbers will be big, but we're still going to be materially below where we were. And remember, we were averaging sub 2% GDP growth over the last decade. We're going to go right back to that level um, within the next 12 months, and that's well, nothing to really get excited about because we'll be below trend by a pretty significant margin. Then you must be short the S&P. I mean, uh, how are you no, positioned then relative the to, your, to your point of view? We are, you know, we, we run a, a hedged fund and we are uh, hedged at this time, right? We're only about 60% net long, um, but we find plenty of things to be excited about, plenty of things that have been on sale we're very overweight energy, have been since fourth quarter last year when people were giving energy companies away. Uh, we're overweight some of the other value names uh, and materials. Uh, we are short quite a lot in, in the, the most overvalued sectors of, of technology. Um, but I spend a lot more time these days in, in other segments of the market. As you know, we spend a lot of time in cryptocurrency and, and Bitcoin, very overweight right. there. And we're very overweight in the private market. So we do a lot in both venture capital and, and uh, growth equity. But let me ask you this. How can you be uh, positioned towards energy and materials and other areas in the cyclical space, which I know you are, if you believe that we're not going to see the economic boom that people suggest we are? Doesn't that flies in the face of your position, doesn't it? No, not at all. Right. I mean, again, it, everything's about price relative to value. So I don't need a boom to have a recovery in, in oil price or oil stocks and the price of oil stocks because they got so egregiously undervalued at the end of last year when everybody thought, you know, fossil fuels were going out of business. Like even if all of us wanted an EV, it's going to be 30 years before we get rid of the internal combustion engine. So they were, you know, oil uh, companies, big oil companies were two and a half percent of the S&P, the lowest in history, that was just an easy time to be a buyer. And that's the best performing sector 
in Q1. Uh, my big thing is Fang, Diamondback Energy, has crushed Fang, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google, since the election. So it, we don't need a boom for those things to, to do well. And again, I think we're going to see robust growth here, maybe in the first and second quarter, but that's just stimulus and it's fake. It's like a steroid shot. We're going to be back to sub 2%. I don't understand how that's possible, though. I'm sorry. I mean, look, you know, I respect your opinion, of course. Um, But how how is the thought of getting our lives back fake and getting out there and spending money and traveling and and doing all the things that we want to do that we haven't been able to do for 13 or 14 months? That's not Fed that the Fed can may have propped the market up. And that's undeniable. But the Fed has had nothing to do with our lives. The fact that we haven't been able to live and now we're going to get out and we're going to spend money and there's going to be a boom. How, how is that fake? Uh, again, we, I guess we'll, we'll, we'll see, right? We're still 45% below uh, where we were uh, two years ago in terms of air travel, in terms of passengers. You know, look, I went to my first family wedding this past Saturday out in Phoenix. It was glorious, right? We got together, we danced, we hugged. It was, it was awesome. And I do believe you're going to see some of that. But that's just bringing forward or we're bringing back the deferred uh, spending that was going to happen before. So, look, we went down 30 plus percent. We're going to rebound somewhere in the similar range and we're going to end up with an output gap, with a gap in GDP from where we would have been if we stayed on trend. That's incontrovertible. So it doesn't mean we're not going to see some excitement. They call it spring break for adults. Uh, over the next few months, and that will be great, and it'll look great on the headlines, but profits are still barely back to where they were pre-COVID. Their expectations that they might go higher, no evidence of that yet, so we'll see. All right, we will, we're going to reconvene and, and have a conversation in, let's say, let's say six months, and let's see what's happened. Um, you know, look, like I said, I, I respect your, your, your opinion, uh, and you manage money for a living and you've been placing your bets on your point of view. And I, and I, and I respect that. Let, let me move the conversation, if I may, to Archegos, uh, because, you know, Bill Huang uh, quite well. Can you yep. tell us about that? I mean, I, I can tell you the, the facts that I know and as I know them. And, and as you said, I've, I've known Bill for a very long time. Uh, we were one of the earliest investors in, in Tiger Asia when he spun out of Tiger Management, and Julian seeded him to put him in business. We made a lot of money with with Tiger Asia, and we're very grateful for that. Uh, We took the money back from Tiger Asia before, actually, he he ran into the troubles uh, in Hong Kong and uh, shut down, converted to a family office. Uh, We then have have since had money with a couple of his protégés over the years. Uh, Today, we only have capital with one of those those spin-out firms that uh, we took money back from the other two. And and look, you know, Bill is a great investor, full stop. He he always has been. Uh, did he get too close to the line? The people in Hong Kong would say that he did. Uh, he paid a fine, and uh, you know, that that is what that is. Uh, in his family office, he used decent amounts of leverage through swap contracts. The problem with leverage, right? It's wonderful on the way up. It can be a killer on the way down. And what we, you know, what you and I talked about two Fridays ago was it appears to to have caught up with him. So 
Uh, again, I have not spoken to Bill since since the events. I've, I've seen some some correspondence between he and, and other people I know. Um, but this is a devastating blow to uh, a very long track record of success and a career that that amassed at one point twenty billion dollars, a lot more than most of us will see in our lifetimes. Yeah, there, there's no doubt about that. I, and, and you just said you hadn't spoken with him. Have, have you tried to contact him no, and, I said and, and talk to him about? What happened? No, look, I as as you and I talked about, uh, kind of in real time, uh, you know, our relationship is is with one of the the, the proteges that spun out. Uh, we've talked to them multiple times since then, and, and kind of got their their download. And you know, as 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 you have reported very effectively and and very accurately, uh, there were a, a number of of large cap names where. You know, Archigos was was long and levered long, and uh, when those started going down, uh, some margin calls came in, which forced additional selling. And you know, the problem of of liquidations of, of big margin calls, you don't get to sell what you want to sell; you sell what you have to sell. And ultimately, if if the leverage is too great, you know, the equity can vanish, and and that it appears is what happened. How shocked were you when you when you heard about the amount of leverage? You said you used the word decent, but I think we can both agree that, it, you know, decent's an understatement in this case. And also, had you ever worried about a systemic issue relative to the size of the positions that he had in the unwind that had to take place? Yeah, n- never worried about systemic. And, and you, know, you know, here we are talking about it two weeks out, and, and it was a blip, and it, it certainly has caused some pain. And I think you know, Credit Suisse will will suffer some some meaningful some losses, but but I never worried about systemic. I mean, you know, twenty billion dollars, even levered five times, is a big amount of money, but it pales in comparison to the leverage the banks use. The banks range from twelve to sometimes twenty, in some cases in Europe, thirty or forty times leverage. So when we're talking big leverage, there are a lot of people out there using much, you know, fixed income traders use 100 times leverage sometimes with with uh, futures. So lots of people trade much bigger leverage than Bill was using. But as we all know, we all have a mortgage, right? That's four to one leverage, four dollars of debt for a dollar of equity. And if the price of our home were to decline 20 percent, we'd lose 100 percent of our equity. This wasn't that different at five times. Um, but the problem is you don't need a, a 50% decline in stocks to, to wipe out your equity. You need about a 15 or, or 18%. So that's, that's where he found himself yeah. on the wrong side of that trade. I appreciate your candor uh, on this and uh, certainly your perspective and point of view on the markets. It's always good to get your opinion. Uh, we'll follow up. We'll talk again soon. Mark Yusko, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, thanks for having me, Scott. Enjoy the weekend. All right. You be well. Thank you. Boeing, under pressure, you probably heard about this story, warning customers about a new problem with its 737 MAX jets. The fallout and what investors do with that stock from here, you'll hear from one of them, Farmer Jim, Jim Labenthal. He owns it. He'll tell you what to do now next. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones... Our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC.
Amazon, in a blog post, has just issued a statement regarding the union election in Alabama that went in their favor. This post notes that less than 16 percent of the employees at that facility voted to join the union. It goes on to say, quote, it's easy to predict the union will say that Amazon won this election because we intimidated employees. But that's not true. Our employees heard far more anti-Amazon messages from the union policymakers and media outlets than they heard from us. Amazon says we hope that with the election now over, there's an opportunity to move from talk to action across the country. It welcomes the opportunity to sit down and share ideas with policymakers. Um, but Scott, it's important to note, Amazon says the election is over. The retail union would disagree. It is going to appeal the outcome and says in their own statement, quote, we will not let Amazon's lies, deception and illegal activities go unchallenged. Meantime, there are dueling press conferences occurring right now that we are monitoring one run by Amazon, another run by the union organizers, hearing some very strong rhetoric from both sides. We will continue to monitor and bring you any developments. But Scott, the drama is far from over. Back to you. That certainly seems to be. Dee, thank you. That's Deirdre Bosa. Welcome back. Boeing is the worst performing stock in the Dow today. There it is. It's only down one and a quarter percent. Nonetheless, more issues about the 737 MAX. Jim, you own the stock. Um, I'm sure you're sick and tired of talking about the MAX. Uh, and every time you think you're past it's okay. it, here we are again. <laughs> yeah, but actually, there's been a lot of good news on the 737 MAX. So I, I'm not worried about this. First off, the problem they say could affect uh, backup power units. It's an electrical circuitry problem. Honestly, if you're an engineer, you look at that and you say that's a minor problem. It doesn't affect airworthiness. It's not a big fix. So this doesn't bother me at all. As far as the stock reaction, Boeing is still in a shoot first, ask questions later uh, context. People, they hear the slightest bad news, they sell it. If you don't own it, I do feel this is a good opportunity to get into it. If you do own it, there is nothing in this news today that should shake you from your thesis. Kevin O'Leary, for a guy who used to love Boeing stock, you wouldn't touch this. Is that right? I don't like the sector. I think Boeing trades in sympathy with airlines themselves. I think the airline sector is one of the sectors that's broken. Um, the assumption on the, on the reopening trade is that everything's going to go back to normal. The majority of profits for airlines come from business travel. I don't know of a single S&P company or private company that isn't slashing and hacking uh, all of their business travel because it's a great way to save money. I think when it does come back, and the average ticket last week is about $250, that means everybody's flying to Disneyland and the airlines make no money doing that. So I think this thing will fall apart and, the, and there'll be a pretty negative Q4 for airlines. And then I think we need a couple of them to go bankrupt to reduce capacity because business is impaired 10 to 20 percent permanently, I think. Well, maybe from a business travel standpoint, certainly going to take a long time to come back straight ahead. Pete, we got your unusual activity. We'll do that next. Let's do unusual activity. Pete, tell us what you see today. All right. Well, we've got two different names, Scott, that are both pushing against their 52-week highs. The first one I'm going to give you is Union Pacific, UNP. Now, this one's pretty interesting for me because as it's pushing to those levels, the expectation is to break out of the, that and actually explode to the upside 
and probably because they're also buying options that are part of the earnings as well. So the earnings here are going to be on April 22nd. These are the April 30th expiring 225 calls here. They're going for about $3.30 to $3.50. The stock at the time that they bought these was trading right around 221 and a quarter, somewhere in there. So the stock is a little bit higher. Those options might be a little higher now as well. iHeartMedia. Now, this isn't a name that we see a lot, but we've seen it a couple of different times. And now today we're seeing the May calls being bought. Again, they've also got earnings, and again, it is pushing against these 52-week highs, but they're buying the May 20 calls. They're only going for about 70 cents, but they bought about 4,000 of those, Scott. So I am in both of these two names. I like what we're seeing here, basically playing the upside on maybe a breakout, and maybe the catalyst is the earnings themselves. Okay, good stuff. Thank you for that, Pete. We'll take a quick break. We'll come back and we'll do final trades next. A programming note reminder, CNBC's new tech-focused program, Tech Check, it debuts this coming Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Very excited, and so are they, and they have some big guests coming as well. Dara Khosrowshahi on Monday, 11 a.m., he, of course, the Uber CEO. Congrats to everybody associated with that program, and we will be anxiously awaiting that interview as well. Looking forward to bank earnings, too. They kick off next week. All right, Shan, what are you expecting? These stocks have had a huge run year to date. They better put up some good numbers. I, I agree with you, but I, I really think that this comes down to an interest rate play. And this is why nobody wanted to own money center banks over the last couple of years. A number of us have owned JPM because they had a lot of other areas for revenue. Uh, but I think if you look at what's happening with the yield curve and you just think about the differential there for, for net interest, interest income, these banks have a lot of upside. You also think, have to think about loan provisioning. You know, with the approving economy that we've talked about all day today, those provisions are going to come down and, you know, the defaults are going to be probably a lot lower than we were anticipating back in March. So I, I anticipate some good numbers and I do anticipate continued enthusiasm for the banks over the next couple of quarters. Do you have a final trade for us today, Tusha? I do. I'm going to go with Martin Marietta, MLM um, aggregate. You know, this isn't just an infrastructure play. This is a, um, you know, this is a long-term play in improvement of infrastructure, um, but particularly in Texas. Um, they do a lot of business in Texas, and there's a lot of people moving there. Okay, good stuff. It's nice to see you as well. Have a good weekend to you. Mr. Wonderful, Kevin O'Leary, how about a final trade from you? I'm going to do riot. If you want a proxy on the price of Bitcoin and you don't want to own tainted blood coin from China, which represent about 64% of coin mined, and I don't want to own that, riot should trade with the price of Bitcoin, which I think will be going up over time as a hedge against inflation. Oh, okay, Peter Thiel. Have a good weekend to you, too. Rob Seachin. Applied materials, Scott AMAT, top semiconductor company with the most fast portfolio, huge R&D scalability and upside through their service pipeline. The stock's up 20% since the last time okay. I was on. I think it continues to run. All right, Pete, quickly, and then Farmer Jim, quick. Abercrombie, Scott. Apple, Scott. All right, thank you, guys. Have a great weekend, everybody. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range, 
and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.